America. Well, tr tr Trump has a, a chance of being elected because of the American electorate. The people in general in the United States, 40% of them at least, are maleducated, miseducated by uh, media organizations such as Fox News, where all day long they're getting false news. And so that 40% at least of the American population think, for instance, that Obama was born in a foreign country and that he's a Muslim, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is, especially in the American South, they believe all this. And Trump lies to them day after day, and they don't have enough knowledge to realize that it's lies, and that's not the truth. Wow. So, unfortunately, he's very dangerous, and he's, he can, <clears throat> he's, uh, we will have brown shirts in the streets of San Francisco if he's elected. I mean, this is a pure, pure fascist dictator, and he's a very dangerous person. Who's going to save America? Oh, he's going to save America. Who, who, who is going to save America? Bernie Sanders. <laughs> you know, Bernie Sanders, his movement, the movement started by Bernie Sanders isn't over. We don't know what's going to happen with the, with the elections. If, if Trump should actually get more votes than Hillary Clinton, it's quite possible that the Bernie Sanders movement will rise up and occupy the White House. You know, they had the Occupy movement, the o Occupy Wall Street, etc. Well, they haven't had the Occupy White House movement yet, and that might happen if Trump is elected. That's what I think is going to happen. Thank you very much. Grazie. Lawrence Berlinghetti. Let us pray. Our Father, whose art's in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Unless things change, thy wisdom come and gone, thy will will be undone on earth as it isn't heaven. Give us this day our daily dread at least three times a day. And forgive us our trespasses on love's territory, for thine is the wisdom and power and glory. Oh, man! Born 103 years ago, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Lawrence is somewhere in the ether. It was Lawrence Mon Monsanto Ferlinghetti, born March 24th, 1919 in Yonkers, New York. Died on February 22nd, 2021 in San Francisco, California, his adopted home. Since the 1950s, he started City Lights Books. This is the Dr. Seuss Film Podcast. I talked about Lawrence Ferlinghetti on the anniversary of his death. And here we are talking about him on his birthday. And the first excerpt was him talking about that previous administration and how it came to be. And then the clip that I just played is for from the band, The Last Waltz, where he delivers... The Lord's Prayer, although he delivers, what did he say? Last prayer, <laughs> our arts who are in heaven. 
Oh. Ferlinghetti was an interesting guy. We would not have these beat poets without him. Ferlinghetti was born March 24th, 1919 in Yonkers, New York. Shortly before his birth, his father, Carlo, a native of Bercia, died of a heart attack. And his mother, Clemence Albertine, Albertine, a Monsanto of uh, Sephardic Jewish descent, was committed to a mental hospital shortly after. He was raised by an aunt and later by foster parents. He attended the Mount Hermon School for Boys, later Northfield Mount Hermon, graduated in 1937, then the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he earned a B.A. in journalism in 1941. He began his journalism career by writing short sports for the Daily Tar Heel and published his first short stories in Carolina Magazine, for which Thomas Wolfe had written. He served in the U.S. Navy throughout World War II as the captain of a submarine chaser in Normandy invasion. In 1947, he earned an M.A. degree in English literature from Columbia University with a thesis on John Ruskin and the British painter J.M.W. Turner from Columbia. He went to the University of Paris and earned a Ph.D. in comparative literature with a dissertation on Paris as a symbol in modern poetry. Ferlinghetti met his wife-to-be, Selden Kirby Smith, the granddaughter of Edmund Kirby Smith, in 1946 aboard a ship en route to France. They both were heading to Paris to study at the Sorbonne. Sorbonne. Kirby Smith went by the name Kirby. In 1951, he, of course, made the trek across the country to San Francisco and founded City Lights in North Beach in 1953. His partnership with Peter D. Martin, a student at San Francisco State University. They both invested $500. In 1955, Ferlinghetti bought Martin's share and established a publishing house with the same name. The first series pub- he published was the Pocket Poet series. He was arrested for publishing Allen Ginsberg's Howl, resulting in a First Amendment trial in 1957, where Ferlinghetti was charged with publishing an obscene work and acquitted. <sighs> he lived a very long life, dying at the ripe old age of 101. This is this is uh, from. Poetry and insurgent art, I am signaling you through the flames. If you would be a poet, create works capable of answering the challenge of apocalyptic times, even in this meaning sounds apocalyptic. You are Whitman, you are Poe, you are Mark Twain, you are Emily Dickinson and Edna St. Vincent Millay, and you are Neruda and Mikowski and Pasolini, and you are an American or non-American. You conquer the conquerors with words. I wanted to talk about him because it's his birthday. And I'm not going to let his birthday go by. Yeah, I talked about his the day that he died, but it's it's imperative that we talk about both. And and how City Lights books really was founded and there there was a reason why he came here because he said that, you know, in New York the publishing the publishing mecca you just it was too expensive it was a too it was too expensive to live and it was a, too expensive for him to start a publishing house and uh, let's see oh lyrics with Ferlinghetti. Rise of despair. This is from Democracy Now. For obscenity. In 2007, I interviewed Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Here we go. This is from Democracy Now. Uh, uh, His 100th birthday, which happened in 2019. Today, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, a leading literary figure of the Beat Generation who turned 100 on Sunday. Ferlinghetti is a poet, bookseller, book publisher, artist, and activist. In 1953, he co founded City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, the first all paperback bookshop in the country. Two years later, Lawrence Ferlinghetti launched the City Lights Publishing House. both institutions are still running today. City Lights might be best known as the publisher of Allen Ginsberg's Lem 
landmark poem, Howl. It revolutionized American poetry and American consciousness. But it also led Ferlinghetti and his publishing partner being arrested and put on trial for obscenity. In 2007, I interviewed Lawrence Ferlinghetti in San Francisco. Well, this is um, poetry as insurgent art, which is uh, being published September 30th by New Directions and has a couple of inscriptions at the beginning. One uh, after Bertolt Brecht. What times are these when to write a poem about love is about is almost a crime because it con contains so many silences about so many horrors. And then another uh, quote, we apologize for the inconvenience, but this is a revolution, subcomandante sub Marcos. And the book begins, this is a prose book, poetry as insurgent art. I am signaling you through the flames. The North Pole is not where it used to be. Manifest destiny is no longer manifest. Civilization self-destructs. The goddess Nemesis is knocking at the door. What are poets for in such an age? What is the use of poetry? If you would be a poet, create works capable of answering the challenge of apocalyptic times even if this means sounding apocalyptic. You have to decide if bird cries are cries of ecstasy or cries of despair, by which you will know if you are a tragic or lyric poet. Conceive of love beyond sex. Be subversive, constantly questioning reality and the status quo. Strive to change the world in such a way that there's no further need to be a dissident. Read between the lives and write between the lines. And so that's just a taste of Ferlinghetti the man, but his legacy, City Lights Books, is a birthplace of the literary revolution. This is this is an interesting um, piece that I wanted to highlight. If you ever want to go to City Lights Books, we want to go there. We're not just tourists; we're pop pilgrims. We are now on our way over to the City Lights Bookstore people that we now consider part of the canon of American literature, like Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, City Lights was the one that published their books. They were the only ones that sold their books at first, a landmark institution in the history of the changes that took place in America. Let's start. Tell me about this place. Well, it was founded in 1953 by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and it was modeled after the European bookstores, which had a publishing house as well as a bookstore in the same operation. Uh -huh. Lawrence's partner was a guy by the name of Peter D. Martin. Peter D. Martin was mostly interested in the journal. Ferlinghetti really had a broader vision, which was to create a publishing house that issued forth quality paperbacks. Hardcovers were very expensive. Yeah. And the great thing about a paperback is that, you know, you didn't have to spend a week's worth of wages on it. He wanted to make something that just some kid would come in and with an allowance money be able to pick up mm -hmm. and open up and just like and inspire. He wanted to inspire a generation of people to look at poetry differently. So the Howl was published as a pocket poet series. Yeah. And then what were the, how did it wind up in court? What happened? It was the San Francisco Police Department. It was looked at and they, they figured that they could charge Ferlinghetti with obscenity. Because... Because there were words that uh, were questionable in the larger uh, scale vernacular, words, yeah. okay, so, you know, you, certain four-letter words, and also but portrayals of human behavior and, and outlook, and the outlook was basically that something had gone wrong with America, mm -hmm. and I think that was the real reason. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much the four-letter words. The cop, did they come and arrest, they arrested him for pub, they, being the publisher? They put the handcuffs on both Ferlinghetti and the manager at the time, Shig Morat. They're let out on bail shortly thereafter. I mean, someone made a mistake, actually. They thought they could kind of quell City Lights by, you know, twisting their arm a little bit. And mm -hmm. they realized that behind City Lights was, you know, the entire community. And not only that, but, you know, a, a national 
community of not just writers, uh -huh. but uh, the public itself. But you know, so much is made of the beats, and really what we have to understand is that there's a longer continuum that they're simply a part of. Mm -hmm. After the beats came the movements of the 60s, later the punk rock movement, and the seller of City Lights, Search and Destroy, which is a very, very influential punk rock journal, was founded right here. Uh -huh. Later, the zine explosion. Um, so all kinds of things happen here. First and foremost, we're a cultural center. Okay. And this is really the nexus where the literary and the political meet. Uh -huh. And so we're, our job is to keep the avant-garde alive. I would come right here. I would sit in these very chairs. Re these very chairs? They're the same chairs? Po the post chair has been here forever, for sure. So you would and come I bought Flowers of Evil, which is right here. Uh, and it changed my life. How did it change your life? Baudelaire spoke to the kind of adolescent I was, which was the world is made of shit and everyone is behaving badly, but I would rather gaze at the moon and a pretty woman than deal with the lies of a tidy life. And I thought, yeah, that's what I meant, Totes. Baudelaire. My goats. It's one of the fun things to come here is to watch other people get radicalized and transformed. And you, I mean, you see that every time you come in here. You see young people taking a book off the shelf, and you think it's about to happen. It's like any other radicalizing cultural experience. You know, it's when someone says, I heard the Velvet Underground were pretty good. Maybe I'll try this record with a banana on it. Yeah. It feels like that. I think what best exemplifies the mission here is something that happened to me a few years ago when I first started working here. A middle-aged woman approached me as I was working in the stacks, straightening shelves, and she said, uh, you know, would you help me out? Uh, my granddaughter's with me, and uh, I need to put together a reading list for her. So I walked over, and here's this 16-year-old, spiky hair, pierced nose, tattoos, shy as ever. Mm -hmm. He couldn't even look me in the eye. And I put together this list of, you know, everything from Hannah Aaron to Jorge Bataille, a broad list of stuff. A few years go by, and I'm on my lunch break, and I'm about to leave the store, and this beautifully coiffed woman walks up to me, and the first thing I think is, uh-oh. She's going to serve me a summons. And she walks up and she goes, are you Peter? And I said, yeah. And she says, oh, she goes, um, I'd like to thank you. And I'm just puzzled, just staring at her. Going, what is this? And she says, uh, you put together a reading list for me many years ago, which changed my life. And I have come back and I have a reading list now of my own. And would you help me find these books? She goes, I'm in a master's program and I want to become a teacher. That's our mission. And so that is A Taste of City Lights. It's located in San Francisco. It's located at uh, 261 Columbus Avenue, San Francisco, California. It's been there for 71 years. And so that is Ferlinghetti's legacy. <sighs> yeah. Very iconic legacy. And there was a film that came out. Uh, let's see. Ah, here we go. Howl, released in 2010, I believe. And it's James Franco, David Strathairn, John Hamm, Mary Louise Parker, directed by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman. And Franco played... What is it? Uh, Ginsburg. And let's see who played Ferlinghetti. Into the street. It is my opinion that if it has any literary okay. value, it's negligible. I endeavored to arrive at my. Okay, that's. Uh, I'm looking for for who who played Ferlinghetti, because I've never watched the movie. I should. Let's see. I am not I am not the biggest James Franco fan, so maybe that's why. But it was about it was about Ginsburg and Ferlinghetti and I thought, oh, okay, you know. And I and I was aware of them. Many many others aren't. Is this oh, is this it? Who's this? As we search for it. Because you know, this is the Doctor Zeus film podcast. As a matter of fact, I, I think okay. in a way Nope. I'm looking. And I did finish Drive My Car, by the way, and I will talk about that at another time. Because it was visually 
just amazing. Very heartbreaking at the same time. And who played Ferlinghetti and how I'm looking. Is this it? Next paragraph. Uh, who blew and were blown <laughs> by those human seraphim, the sailors, caresses of Atlantic and Caribbean love. Uh, now, you understand what uh, blue and blown uh, mean. Well, I, I think they're words that have several meanings. Oh, yeah, they're discussing the, the, the language of how, which Ferlinghetti and his uh, publishing, you know, house blown. published. I mean, they were the first paperback publishing company and dr hicks kept saying okay what do you want to do oh god i always hate that when i'm when i'm looking for something i mean there's no real chapters in it that's right as i understand your next signpost is that the idea and i can't find it and so or can I? I? I always say, I hate saying, oh, I can't. It's like when you say, I don't want to do it. Okay. Yeah. I think legacy, as we talk about Ferlinghetti, not only that he had a long life, but... How sweet your Okay. Let's see... Was that Ferlinghetti? Okay. Franco does not look like Ginsburg. So it's kind of like, okay. Whenever you're going to cast people in these roles. This is probably why I didn't like the movie. I mean, I'll watch bits and pieces of it because it it's historical, you know? But the way they use, like, they used animation, and it's, okay, not everyone wants to trip out, but if I can, okay, is that it? No, that's not <laughs> And And Treat Williams doesn't play him, so, you know, let's see. I don't think anyone played him. I, I it sucks. I think they did, but I think the fact that we can't because it's so usually when you do a film so because he didn't talk much about or or maybe he did about the trial and Yeah. Okay. Let's see. And the right field bleachers go mad with This is Ferlinghetti talking to the San Francisco Public Library in 1998. And sweet Tito puts his foot in the bucket and smacks one that don't come back at all. And flees around the bases like he's escaping from the United Fruit Company. As the gringo dollar beats out the pound. And sweet Tito beats it out like he's beating out usury, not to mention fascism and anti-Semitism. And one Marichal comes up and the Chicano bleachers go loco again as one... Belts the first fastball out of sight and rounds first and keeps going and rounds second and rounds third and keeps going and hits pay dirt to the roars of the grungy populace. As some nut presses the backstage panic button for the tape-recorded national anthem again to save the situation. But it don't stop nobody this time. 
in their revolution round the loaded white bases in this last of the great Anglos. Love and the Jarrett all ads <laughs> on Grand Ole Opry. The face of the nation facing the nation on color TV. The electric burner that replaced the log fire. The electric log, the gas log in color with antenna up the chimney. We sit entranced by the burning images on the grid in the bright grate. The flickering faces in the crucible whose light intensity we can turn up to suit, whose vertical image we can adjust. I for it. Well, when I was graduating from Chapel Hill, all the guys I knew were volunteering for the armed services. It was the only socially acceptable thing to do. I had never heard of a conscientious objector. On the East Coast, we didn't have such things, as far as I knew. Now, it was in D-Day, June 1944. We were in an armada of at least a thousand ships, and we were the smallest U.S. commissioned vessel, USS Subchaser 1308. It's a 110-foot wooden ship with 30 men and three officers. We were on the anti-submarine screen. We didn't land. We could see all these doughboys getting shot up on the beaches, but we were much safer being in the Navy. We had a camera on board in a little camera lab, and we took a lot of amateur pictures. We didn't have time to take many. I was a skipper, and we were steaming in this huge convoy. So we all came together just as dawn was breaking when the whole fleet headed for the beach and started debarking the, the troops. The sea is calm tonight, off Dover Beach. The birds at dusk cry out syllables of some deconstructed word we are yet unable to decipher to explain existence. And they lift the last light with their wings, keeping the secret. When we finally did get back to England, that fall, the fall of 44, I got orders to go back to the States and then across the Pacific toward Japan. And we were loaded with 5,000 troops. It was supposed to be an invasion force. trained in Nagasaki one day and it was totally open there was no guards or anything keeping people out of course this was maybe six or seven weeks after the bomb was dropped they cleaned up the site somewhat and they walked around in this like a three square mile mulch of fused ruins like human flesh fused to a teacup and bones and hair sticking out of this mulch every single building flattened and pulverized when you realize the whole city it just disappeared it made me an instant pacifist no doubt about it up to then i was totally politically naive i was a good american boy boy scout we never questioned being in the military service because this is world war ii which is called the good war and so there was no discussion about whether we should be in the war or should we have dropped the bomb. Years later, after I became more politically literate, I came to the conclusion we never would have dropped the bomb if the Japanese had had a white skin. It was a monstrous racist act. Let me ask you, Lawrence, were you frightened when you were arrested? No, I good. loved, I good. loved it. Did you? Good, good. Are you, are you filming yet? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, I was young and foolish and I had lots of time. I figured I could spend a few years in jail and get a lot of reading done. I knew I wouldn't get a, a tyrannical sentence. It wouldn't be very, very long. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. 
And uh, oh, I wasn't a bit worried when we had the American Civil Liberties Union to defend us, and they won the case. A young lawyer named Albert Bendick, who was his, it was his first trial case. He was just out of law school three years. Al Bendick, and he became later he became the vice president of Fantasy Records hmm. in Berkeley. Wow. But uh, Al won the case on the constitutional points of uh, Second Amendment, the freedom of speech. And the, uh, the judge set a precedent, he set a legal precedent, which was that you could not judge a work obscene if it had the slightest redeeming social significance. That was the key phrase. And it, that set a legal precedent which allowed uh, the Grove Press, Barney Rossett's Grove Press, to publish almost immediately Lady Chatterley's Lover and Henry Miller's uh, Tropics of Cancer and Tropics of Capricorn and uh, Jean Genet. And uh, that was uh, the flood, floodgates were open after that. The trial was in 1956, mm -hmm. 55 56. I think it was Judge Horn, wasn't it? Horn. Yeah. I think his decision helped in the case for Big Table. Oh, yeah. It, was a, it set a legal precedent. precedent. That's right. That it was very hard for anyone to get a conviction after that. Mm -hmm. Even though it was only a municipal court, mm -hmm. it stood up. Mm -hmm. It sure helped Barney Rossett. That's right, that's right. In Paul's case, um, they seized this book, Big Table One, when they tried to put it through the post office. They seized 400 copies. The for, uh, issue number one of Big Table? Yes, yes, yes. They judged it as being obscene. Oh. And the first hearing was a um, hearing by the post office which decided against it, but then it went to federal court. And that's where ACLU also came in. And like your case, it was Joel Sprayregan. It was his first case. Paul was worried because he was a untested. Who was the lawyer? Joel Sprayregan. Uh -huh. And Paul was worried because this was an untested lawyer. Oh. What Paul was afraid of, he wasn't afraid, well, he didn't want to go to jail. He didn't want to pay money he didn't have, but what he really was afraid of was his mother. And what he was afraid of was he would lose his job, and he did. Loyola, Loyola University fired him because of this. The he, university fired him? Yes, yes. At the University of Chicago? No. No, he was not working there. He was working at Loyola, which is a Catholic institution. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Paul was Catholic. Yeah, that's right. And they fired him over the protest of students. But what he was afraid of was he wouldn't get a job and he'd have to move back in and live with his mother. That's what he really had to do, He had to move back where? In with his mother. And that's what really scared him. She was, she was your great dragon without the sexy parts. <laughs> <laughs> and that is um, Ferlinghetti talking to May Rose Carroll about censorship in February of 2016. He was in his 90s. He was probably three years away from turning 100. And that was filmed by Terry Schwartz in San Francisco. And it's Ferlinghetti telling the history, the attempted censorship of Howell, and the legal precedent the court case made affecting all future censorship, including the U.S. Post Office attempts to censor Big Table One. This is uh, Ferlinghetti reading, Constantly Risking Absurdity. This is Poetry Every Day, presented by Overlook Tutorial Academy. Today's poem is Constantly Risking Absurdity, by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Constantly risking absurdity and death whenever he performs above the heads of his audience, the poet, like an acrobat, climbs on rhyme to a high wire of his own making 
and balancing on I-beams above a sea of faces, paces his way to the other side of the day, performing entrachats and sleight-of-foot tricks and other high theatrics, and all without mistaking anything for what it may not be. For he's the super-realist who must perforce perceive taught truth before the taking of each stance or step in his supposed advance toward that still higher perch where beauty stands and waits with gravity to start her death-defying leap. And he, a little Charlie Chaplin man, who may or may not catch her fair eternal form, spread eagle in the empty air of existence. Now that's a Ferlinghetti poem. I don't know who read it. That wasn't Ferlinghetti. Here's here's Ferlinghetti. I am waiting for my case to come up, and I'm waiting for a rebirth of wonder. And I am waiting for someone to really discover America and whale. And I am waiting for the discovery of a new symbolic Western frontier. And I am waiting for the American Eagle to really And we have technical difficulty. Let's go back. Eagle to really spread its wings and straighten up and fly right. And I'm waiting for the war to be fought, which will make the world safe for anarchy. And I am waiting for the final withering away of all governments. And I am perpetually waiting a rebirth of wonder. And I'm waiting for the second coming. And I'm waiting for the grapes of wrath to be stored. And I am waiting for them to prove that God is really American. And I am waiting to see God on television piped onto church altars. If only they can find the right channel to tune in on. And I am waiting for the last supper to be served again with a strange new appetizer. And I am waiting for my number to be called. And I am waiting for the Salvation Army to take over. And I am waiting for the meek to be blessed and inherit the earth without taxes. And I am waiting for forests and animals to reclaim the earth as theirs. And I am waiting for a way to be devised to destroy all nationalisms without killing anybody. And I am waiting for linnets and planets to fall like rain. And I am waiting for lovers and weepers to lie down together again in a new rebirth of wonder. And I am waiting for the great divide to be crossed, and I am anxiously waiting for this secret of eternal life to be discovered by an obscure general practitioner. And I am waiting for the storms of life to be over, and I am waiting to set sail for happiness. And I am waiting for a reconstructed Mayflower to reach America with its picture story and TV rights sold in advance to the natives. And I am waiting for the lost music to sound again in the lost continent in a new rebirth of wonder. And I am waiting for the day that maketh all things clear. And I am waiting retribution for what America did to Tom Sawyer. And I am waiting for the American boy to take off beauty's clothes and get on top of her. And I am waiting for Alice in Wonderland to retransmit to me her total dream of innocence. And I am waiting for Aphrodite to grow live arms at a final disarmament conference in a new rebirth of wonder. And I am waiting to get some intimations of immortality by recollecting my early childhood. And I am waiting for the green mornings to come again. Youth, dumb green fields, come back again. And I am waiting for some strains of unpremeditated art to shake my word processor. And I am waiting to write the great indelible poem. And I am waiting for the last long careless rapture and I am perpetually waiting for the fleeing lovers on the Grecian urn to catch each other up at last and embrace. And I am awaiting perpetually and forever a renaissance of wonder. And that's from 1999. Lawrence Ferlinghetti reading A Coney Island of the Mime. I am waiting. Music by yeah. Dana Cauley. And let's see... Goya in America. I love when he just would just set it out there. Kafka's Castle. Castle. Kafka poem. Kafka's castle stands above the world like a last bastille of the mystery of existence. 
Its blind approaches baffle us. Steep paths plunge nowhere from it. Roads radiate into air like the labyrinth wires of a telephone central through which all calls are infinitely untraceable. Up there, it is heavenly weather. Souls dance undressed together. And like loiterers on the fringes of a fair, we ogle the unobtainable imagined mystery. Yet away around on the far side, like the stage door of a circus tent, is a wide, wide vent in the battlements where even elephants waltz through. Poem about poetry written in Old English. See, it was like this. When we waltz into this place, a couple of papish cats is doing an Aztec two-step. And I says, Dad, let's cut. But then this dame comes up behind me, see, and says, you and me could really exist. Wow, I says, only the next day. She has bad teeth and really hates poetry. Are there not still fireflies in America? Are there not still four-leaf clovers? Is not our land still beautiful? Our fields not full of armed enemies? Our cities never bombed by foreign invaders? never occupied by iron armies, speaking iron tongues? Are not our warriors still valiant, ready to defend us? Are not our senators still wearing fine togas? Are we not still a great people in the greatest country in all the world? Is this not still a free country? Are not our fields still ours? Our gardens still full of flowers? our ships with full cargoes. Why then do some still fear the barbarians coming, coming, coming in their huddled masses? What is that sound that fills the air, drumming, drumming? Is not Rome still Rome? Is not Los Angeles still Los Angeles? Is not beauty still beauty and truth still truth? Are there not still poets? Are there not still lovers? Are there not still mothers, sisters, and brothers? Is there not still a full moon once a month? Are there not still fireflies? Are there not still stars at night? Can we not still see them in bowl of night signaling to us our manifest destinies? Autobiography. I am leading a quiet life in Mike's place every day, watching the champs of the Dante Billiard Parlor and the French Pinball Addicts. I am leading a quiet life on Lower East Broadway. I am an American. I was an American boy. I read the American Boy magazine and became a Boy Scout in the suburbs. I thought I was Tom Sawyer catching crayfish in the Bronx River and imagining the Mississippi. I had a baseball mitt and an American flyer bike. I delivered the woman's home companion at five in the afternoon or the Herald Trib at five in the morning. I still can hear the paper thump on lost porches. I had an unhappy childhood. I saw Lindbergh land. I looked homeward and saw no angel. I got caught stealing pencils from the five and ten cent store the same month I made Eagle Scout. I chopped trees for the CCC and sat on them. I landed in Normandy in a rowboat that turned over. I have seen the educated armies on the beach at Dover. I have seen Egyptian pilots in purple clouds, shopkeepers rolling up their blinds at midday, potato salad and dandelions at anarchist picnics. I am reading a life of John Most 
terror of the industrialist, a bomb on his desk at all times. I have seen the garbage men parade in the Columbus Day Parade behind the glib farting trumpeters. I have not been out to the cloisters in a long time, nor to the Tuileries, but I still keep thinking of going. I have seen the garbage men parade when it was snowing. I have eaten hot dogs in ballparks. I have heard the Gettysburg Address and the Ginsburg Address. I like it here, and I won't go back where I came from. I, too, have ridden boxcars, boxcars, boxcars. I have traveled among unknown men. I have been in Asia with Noah in the Ark. I was in India when Rome was built. I have been in the manger with an ass. I have seen the eternal distributor from a white hill in South San Francisco and the laughing woman at Luna Park outside the funhouse in a great rainstorm still laughing. I have heard the sound of revelry by night. I have wandered lonely as a crowd. I am leading a quiet life outside of Mike's place every day, watching the world walk by in its curious shoes. I once started out to walk around the world, but ended up in Brooklyn. That bridge was too much for me. I have engaged in silence, exile, and cunning. I flew too near the sun, and my wax wings fell off. I am looking for my old man, whom I never knew. I am looking for the lost leader with whom I flew. Young men should be explorers. Home is where one starts from. But mother never told me there'd be scenes like this. Womb weary, I rest. I have traveled. I have seen Goof City. I have seen the mass mess. I have heard Kid Ori cry. I have heard a trombone preach. I have heard Debussy strain through a sheet. I have slept in a hundred islands where books were trees. I have heard the birds that sound like bells. I have worn gray flannel trousers and walked upon the beach of hell. I have dwelt in a hundred cities where trees were books. What subways, what taxis, what cafes, what women with blind breasts, limbs lost among skyscrapers. I have seen the statues of heroes at Carrefour's, Danton weeping at a metro entrance, Columbus in Barcelona pointing westward up the Ramblas toward the American Express. Lincoln in his stony chair and a great stone face in North Dakota. I know that Columbus did not invent America. I have heard a hundred housebroken Ezra Pounds. They should all be freed. It is long since I was a herdsman. I am leading a quiet life in Mike's place every day. What's your stop? It's a five-six. Give us this day our daily bread at least three times a day and lead us not into temptation too often on weekdays, but deliver us from evil whose presence remains unexplained in thy kingdom of power and glory. Oh, man. Highlights of the meal. I've been thinking that it's been a long day and I'm just incredibly hungry. It's very, very good and very satisfying to finally be eating some of this food instead of filming it. Okay. <laughs> Here's to the crew being the host. Good job, guys. This is a scarpetta. Scarpetta when you clean up at the bottom of the dish with a piece of bread. Scarpetta. Scarpetta means a little shoe. And that is Ferlinghetti doing the Lord's Prayer for a rendition of a, a cooking show that they were going at uh, someone he knew was doing uh, constantly. Ferlinghetti. Constantly risking absurdity and death, whenever he performs above the heads of his audience, the poet, like an acrobat, climbs on rhyme to, to a high wire of his own making, 
and balancing on I-beams above a sea of faces, paces his way to the other side of day, performing entre-shots and sleight-of-foot tricks and other high theatrics, and all without mistaking anything for what it may not be. For he is the super-realist who must perforce perceive taught truths before the taking of each stance or step in his supposed advance toward that still higher perch where beauty stands and waits with gravity to start her death-defying leap. And he, a little Charlie Chaplin man, who may or may not catch her fair eternal form spread-eagled in the empty air of existence. This poem starts off with the Spanish painter Francisco Goya, but takes off into America. In Goya's greatest scenes, we seem to see the people of the world exactly at the moment when they first attain the title of suffering humanity. They writhe upon the page in a veritable rage of adversity, heaped up, groaning with babies and bayonets under cement skies in an abstract landscape of blasted trees, bent statues, bats' wings and beaks, slippery gibbets, cadavers and carnivorous cocks, and all the final hollering monsters of the imagination of disaster. They are so bloody real it is as if they really still existed. And they do. Only the landscape is changed. They still are ranged along the roads, plagued by legionnaires, false windmills, and demented roosters. They are the same people, only further from home, on freeways 50 lanes wide, on a concrete continent, spaced with bland billboards illustrating imbecile illusions of happiness. The scene shows fewer tumbrils, but more maimed citizens in painted cars, and they have strange license plates and engines that devour America. Trojan horse. Homer didn't live long enough to tell of Trump's White House, which is his Trojan horse, from which all the president's men burst out to destroy democracy and install predatory capitalism as the absolute ruler of the world, ever more powerful than nations. And it's happening as we sleep, bow down. Oh, common man, bow down. Those are some extraordinary poems written and read by the man himself, Lawrence Monsanto, Ferlinghetti. They were the and the there's a really great documentary from 1999 called The Source. She talks about the beats and the poetry, the publishing, and, you know, those who help to get it done. Because, you know, if you if it's not going to get published... Oh, here we go. Here's Ferlinghetti. Here he is. And uh, we took a rest and went downstairs to the bathroom. And this owner of the hotel, what do you think he thinks? Two guys, right? Four legs. We're oh. having sex. They're indignant. I say, hey, we're smoking a joint, man. We're having There once was a place, perhaps, where all was light. Which once was the place, pray tell, some non-man-made god hung out. And so, tra-la, tra-la, you 
It's fan du siècle again, my dears. And the music of the spheres, some kind of mad, mad laughter. That's Ferlinghetti reciting some poems. Um, I, I like this one because this is going to piss some of you off. And that's why I love it. Christ climbed down. Christ climbed down from his bare tree this year and ran away to where there were no rootless Christmas trees hung with candy canes and breakable stars. Christ climbed down from his bare tree this year and ran away to where there were no gilded Christmas trees and no tinsel Christmas trees and no tinfoil Christmas trees and no pink plastic Christmas trees and no gold Christmas trees and no black Christmas trees and no powder blue Christmas trees hung with electric candles and encircled by tin electric trains and clever cornball relatives. Christ climbed down from his bare tree this year. And ran away to where no intrepid Bible salesman covered the territory in two-tone Cadillacs and where no Sears Roebuck crutches, complete with plastic babe in manger, arrived by parcel post, the babe by special delivery, and where no televised wise men praise the Lord Calvert whiskey. Christ climbed down from his bare tree this year and ran away to where no fat handshaking stranger in a red final suit and a fake white beard went around passing himself off as some sort of North Pole saint crossing the desert to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania in a Volkswagen sled drawn by rollicking Adirondack reindeer with German names and bearing sacks of humble gifts from Saks Fifth Avenue for everybody's imagined Christ child. Christ climbed down from his bare tree this year and ran away to where no Bing Crosby carolers groaned of a tight Christmas and where no Radio City angels ice skated wingless through a winter wonderland into a jingle bell heaven daily at 8.30 with midnight mass matinees. Christ climbed down from his bare tree this year and softly stole away into some anonymous Mary's womb again where in the darkest night of everybody's anonymous soul he awaits again an unimaginable and impossibly immaculate reconception the very craziest of second comings has such a soothing voice and yet what he's talking about is provocative and evocative as only Ferlinghetti could tell it. And so I will be back in a moment to just end the show. Uh, I, I hope you've enjoyed the clips of just him reciting the poetry because that's what he did best and his legacy, which is City Lights Books Publishing. Stay tuned, Dr. Zeus Film Podcast coming up. And so it was 103 years ago that this man who gave us City Lights, Booksellers and Publishing, Lawrence Monsanto Ferlinghetti. Poet, activist, essayist, painter, publisher, veteran of World War II. What is his legacy? His legacy is is that you can still go and visit City Lights Books. And his message of poetry. Soon after settling in 1951 in San Francisco, Ferlinghetti met the poet Kenneth Rexroth, whose concepts of philosophical anarchism influence his political development. He self-identified as a philosophical uh, anarchist, regularly associated with other anarchists in North Beach, and sold Italian anarchist newspapers at City Lights Bookstore. A critic of U.S. foreign policy, Fer Ferlinghetti took a stand against totalitar totalitarianism and war. While Ferlinghetti said he was an anarchist at heart, he conceded that the world needed to be populated by saints in order for pure anarchism to be lived practically. Hence, he exposed uh, that can be achieved by Scandinavian-style democratic socialism. 
And on January 14th, 1967, he was featured as a presenter at the Gathering of Tribes, Human Be In, which drew tens of thousands of people and launched San Francisco's Summer of Love. In 1968, he signed Writers and Editors' War Tax Protest Pledge, vowing to refuse to tax payments in protests against Vietnam War. In 1998, his inaugural address at the Poet Laureate of San Francisco, as the Poet Laureate of San Francisco, Ferlinghetti urged San Franciscans to vote to remove a portion of the earthquake-damaged Central Freeway and replace it with a boulevard, which destroys what destroys the poetry of a city. Automobiles destroy, and they destroy more than the poetry. All over America, all over Europe, in fact, cities and towns are under assault by automobile and are being literally destroyed by car culture. But cities are gradually learning that they don't have to let it happen to them. Witness our beautiful new Embarcadero. And in San Francisco right now, we have another chance to stop Autogen from happening here. Just a few blocks from here, the ugly Central Freeway can be brought down for you if you vote for Proposition E on the November ballot. Alongside his bookselling and publishing, Ferlinghetti painted for 60 years, and much of his work was displayed in galleries and museums throughout the United States. In 2009, he turned 90, Ferlinghetti became a member of the honor, the honor Committee of the Italian Artistic Literacy Movement. Imagining po- or let's hold on before we, I don't want to butcher it. Imagine and Poja. Founded under the patronage of, let's see, Aaron Wee Thomas, a retrospective of Ferlinghetti's artwork, 60 years of painting, was staged in Rome and Reggio Calabria in 2010. Jack Kerouac Alley, in 1987, he was the initiator of the transformation of Jack Kerouac Alley, located at the side of his shop. He presented his idea to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, calling for repavement and renewal. Here we go. Ferlinghetti died of intestinal uh, interstational lung disease on February 22, 2001 at his home in San Francisco at the age of 101. And today would have been his 103rd birthday. Ferlinghetti received numerous awards, including the Los Angeles Times Robert Kirsch Award, the Barbara Award for Lifetime Achievement, the National Book Critics Circle Ivan Sadroff Award for Contribution to American Arts and Letters, and the ACLU Erin Warren Civil Liberties Award. He won the Priamo uh, Terrima in 1973 and thereafter was awarded the Priamo Camarilla the Primo uh, Fellino and the Primo Cavara, among other honors in Italy. The Caesar Award, or the Career Award, was conferred, conferred on October 28, 2017. Friend was named San Francisco's Port Poet Laureate in August of 1998 and served for two years. In 2003, he was awarded the Poetry Society of America's Frost Medal, the Authors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award and elected to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. The National Book Foundation honored him with the inaugural Libertarian, uh, Liter- Literarian Award in 2005, given for outstanding service to the American literacy community. In 2007, he was named Commandeur, French Order of Arts and Letters. In 2008, Ferlinghetti was awarded the John Caridi Award for Lifetime Achievement in Poetry. This award is handed out by the National Italian American Foundation to honor the author who has made the greatest contribution to the writing of Ameri- of Italian American poetry. In 2012, Ferlinghetti was awarded the inaugural Janus Promias International Poetry Prize from the Hungarian Pen Club after learning that the government of Hungary under Prime Minister Viktor Orban and partial sponsor of the Six uh, fifty thousand prize. He declined to accept the award. In declining, Ferlinghetti cited his opposition to the right-wing regime of Prime Minister Obran and his opinion that the ruling Hungarian government under Obran is curtailing civil liberties and freedom of speech for the people of Hungary. So he he put his poet his poetic pen to the metal and pulled the trigger. 
Um, okay, Ferlinghetti was played in the 2010 film Hal by Andrew Rogers. In 2011, Ferlinghetti contributed two of his poems to the celebration of the 100th anniversary of Italian unification, Song of the Third World War, and Old Italians Dying, inspired by the artists of the exhibition. Lawrence Ferlinghetti in Italy, 150 held in Turin, Italy, May through June of 2011. On the Book of uh, Lithographs, The Sea Within Us, first published in Italy as Du Maridento in 2012, Ferlinghetti collaborated with lithographer and abstract artist James Clausian. Christopher Flelver made the 2013 documentary in Ferlinghetti, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, A Rebirth of Wonder. And that's Lawrence Ferlinghetti on his 100th birthday. What an an, an amazing artist, a veteran, someone who fought for publishing, fought for just to keep um, everything intact in his work and the poetry. Mr. Ferlinghetti, thank you. Happy birthday, wherever you are in the ether. Um, and in keeping, since we started with it, we're going to end with it. <laughs> if, you know, because that's only how you can... um honor someone uh, is to start with it from the beginning and end with it from your mouth. The Lord's Last Prayer by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Lawrence Monsanto Ferlinghetti. Our fathers who are whose arts in heaven Hallow by thy name, unless things change, thy kingdom come and gone, thy will will be undone, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, at least three times a day, and lead us not into temptation, too often on weekdays, but deliver us from evil, whose presence remains unexplained in thy kingdom of power and glory. Amen. <laughs> As always, unpleasant dreams. Mm -hmm.